introducing our speaker, Dr. Mohidin Ahmad, to discuss cybersecurity. The floor is yours. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, just a disclaimer, I know for a fact it is really a challenge to get the audience's attention in this time of the day. I, I really know because I have been teaching for almost a decade now. So, why we are here? Probably from the title and from the generous introduction from Brendan, you know that I am someone who is really invested in cybersecurity. I have been in this domain for almost a decade now, but shame on me, I'm yet to stop cybercrime. <laughs> but the good thing is, I'm someone who never gives up, so I'll try my best to leave the cyberspace as safe as possible for the next generations. So my day job is to educate the next generation cybersecurity leaders and conduct research on various aspects, starting from Internet of Things, blockchain, healthcare, unmanned aerial vehicles, and last but not least, information warfare, which is relevant with national security. So enough about myself. I think you are bored about me. So here is the bullet points which I'm going to talk about. But why? Why you are going to spend next 40, 50 minutes of your life listening to me? Why is that? Have you ever asked yourself that question that why we are here to listen to this? Because we are living in this era of internet of everything. And probably thanks to COVID-19, but no thanks to COVID-19, we now know for a fact that we have to heavily rely on internet and we are living with internet of everything. So if you ask yourself the question, how many internet connected device you have in your houses? At least five to 10, depending on the family members. So in my house, starting from smart doorbells, smart air conditioning, smart garage, and smart uh, fridge, smart TV, and not to mention the laptops, desktops, iPads, and whatnot. So you know how it works. But as we are spending more and more time online, we are also exposing ourselves to cybercrime. So that's the challenge. Because when internet was invented, no one cared about there might be some cybercrime. But it is human psychology that every now and then someone will be the bad guy, someone will be thinking otherwise. Now we are paying the price. So there's a prediction by Cisco. By 2030, there will be 500 billions of connected devices. So that's a good thing from the manufacturer's point of view. Apple will be really happy. They can sell more iPhone 20, 21. Who knows if I live till 100 years, I might say iPhone 100.
Sorry. That's all right, no problem. At this time of the day, yes, I'm also thinking what's for dinner tonight. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so going back to my talk. So once we have 500 billions of devices, that means there is an economic impact on that. So by 2025, there will be 11 trillions of dollars impact. And remind you, that's not Australian dollar, that's US dollar. So you can do the math. Now, Cisco tried to do a valuation, like house valuation or real estate valuation, but the internet, what's the value for the internet? Back in 2014, almost seven years back, that was $19 trillion. But that's just a valuation. You can't really put a dollar figure for the internet. Imagine someone started studying online. Imagine someone has achieved one bachelor degree just by studying online. And once that person goes on to getting a jobs and having a whole new life just because the student or the person got a degree online. So don't you think that has far more impact in the economy and overall world space? Everyone is utilizing internet as such. It has got huge impact. So $19 trillion is just a figure, but it is beyond our imagination what would be the valuation of internet. Now, did you ever ask yourself how internet works? That is probably one of the most searched question in the internet or for Google search or any other search engine. Even for me, it takes a lot of time to figure out the teeny tiny details of how internet works. But for my mom or for my dad, okay, it's too easy. Just call the internet service provider, let's say it's Belong or TPG or Telstra, whatever it is. Oh, hey, I'm calling for my internet connection. Come to my house and fix the damn router and I can search online and I can do whatever I want online. So here is your smart device, one of thousands of devices around us. It is the router from the, let's say, TPG. And here is the address book for the internet, domain name server. I'm not trying to go into very technical details, uh, just trying to keep it very simple. So the domain name server works as an address book for the internet, and once they go to internet servers, that pulls the exact information you are looking for. So that's how internet works, too simple. But when, as I said earlier, when it was designed, no one thought about cybercrime, and now we're paying the price heavily. So that's in Australian dollar. According to Australian Cybersecurity Center, in 2020, there has been a loss of 33 billions of dollars. And probably some of us paid that price via our taxes. So, are you guys really interested and flabbergasted at the same time. Okay, this guy should be making this up or cooking things up just to make us scared. I'm not, trust me, I'm not. So, what are the most notable issues? There are gazillions of cyber crimes happening every single second, but these four are the four most notable ones. 
according to my personal opinion, and probably at least 99% of my fellow cybersecurity researchers will agree with that. Ransomware, in short, all of a sudden you will find you can't really access your devices, and some things are popping up saying, you need to pay me in Bitcoin, here's the address, or click on this link. Critical infrastructure, uh, if you have been following the news last year, in Germany, one of the hospitals were under cyber attack and one patient should have been getting the emergency services. But due to that attack, which caused disruption, that patient could not get the appropriate care and that patient died while moving to another hospital. So imagine it not only creates chaos in our digital space, but also can take lives. Democracy, I'm not too much savvy on political aspects, but most of you are, because you are the member of international affairs team. So you know how important it is to safeguard our democracy, but since we are living in the eras of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and whatnot, and probably all of you know about the former US president's social media and what has been happening, and yes, some of you are grinning, so you know. And last but not least, personal data privacy. So yes, uh, we don't care if someone dies in Germany, uh, that's too far away. We don't care if the ransomware hits some organization. We don't care. What if you go home and your computer is not turning off, turning on, or you are trying to do something, but you see your computer is not acting as such you wanted it to be. So you are under cyber attack. What you do then? And all of your personal data are in the hands of cyber criminals now. And the possibilities are beyond our imagination of what cyber criminals can do with our personal data. All of a sudden you might be getting letters from banks that you have applied for 20 different credit cards with more than $100,000 of value. Who knows? With simply your Medicare number, they can come up with cooked up or forged transcripts and whatever they want it to be. We have tax file numbers, but in US they have social security numbers. These are really sensitive information. So if your personal devices are under cyber attack, you will be in really, really big trouble. And yes, you might claim all this back via insurances, but by that time, you'll be exhausted and you'll have no support from anyone else. So no one can help you at that time. So here are the most notable issues. And this is just four bullet points. There are many other different types of social cyber crimes happening all around the world, but we just need to be aware of all these things, especially for us. Personal data privacy is really important. Now, let's switch gears and let me put myself into the shoes of a cyber criminal. How simple it is to hack. I can see lots of interesting faces. Trust me, I'm a white hat hacker. That means I'm a good person. Okay, how easy it is to hack. I'm going to use an example of social engineering, which is not too technical, but 
it's somewhat to do with people's soft skills and communication skills. So this is a method to gain illegal access to victim's device. So all of a sudden, I can have access to Brendan's iPhone. Who knows? I won't, don't worry. Or induce the victim to divulge sensitive information, like what's your Medicare number? What's your tax file number? What's your MyGov ID? Can I see your vaccination passport or your digital wallet to show the COVID passport? Things like that. And if you are using internet, trust me, all of you have received emails like this. How cool is that? Within just 24 hours, we'll get $13,000. Press here and learn to make cash. I think all of you have been receiving junk emails like this. If you don't, that means you are not using internet. Now some jaw-dropping stats. Even the tech giants like Google and Facebook, they were not left alone. In 2014, they had to spend more than 100 millions of US dollars to get rid of these social engineering attacks. So if the tech giants like Google and Facebook are paying these hefty prices, we are just no one. I mean, anyone can hack us. So how? Let me show you an example of Facebook Marketplace. I think at least 80% of you are using Facebook. And since the COVID-19 hit us heavily, we are looking more at online shopping places or platform. Facebook mar Marketplace is one of the coolest ones. You can look at the photos, you can negotiate, you can do whatever you want, you can sell, you can buy. So, the social engineering skills are used to launch cyber attacks here. So the conversation in blue background are from the cyber criminal, and the whitish backgrounds are the victim's ones. So the cyber criminal starts with, hello, is this still available? No one replies to this type of generic messages. So he, the cyber criminal goes on like, hi there, can you write world's best boss? It might be a mug, it might be a glass, or it might be any personalized items. So then the seller or the victim gets interested. Yes, they're still available and I can do that. So during these trying times of COVID-19, everyone loves to sell stuff and get some sort of money in their hands. So criminal says, thanks, can you confirm the size of the mug? Oh, it sounds convincing. And what fonts are you going to use? So at this point, the victim or the seller doesn't have any clue. It might be a generic customer. I can use a font that you prefer. Now the credibility is being established. Uh, something fancy, if possible, the criminal is trying to mimic a genuine customer here. So do you need advance payment? Giving the bait. Yes, are you ready to take the cash? Yeah, I can show you beforehand what you like written. Ah, what's best boss? Whereabouts are you? In Jindalo. Because I see you in Jindalo. Ah, this is just an example, don't worry. And now the convincing stuff. So the seller says, would you like to pick up our postage? Now the uh, cyber criminal says, yeah, I can pick it up because the transaction can happen fast. No one has to go to the post or follow all these COVID-19 regulations. Yes, the buyer can pick it up. 
I can't bank transfer the dollar amount if you like for confirmation. Okay, perfect, yes please. And bingo, I'll send through my details. And as you can see, the BSB obviously I have hidden the numbers. Please send a copy of the transaction through just to get the confirmation. And that's it. Now the cyber criminal is saying, just for fun, Okay, so the cyber criminal is really happy. Why? Because the criminal can now send a payment receipt. What to do with payment receipt? It's not a big deal. It, it has an embedded malicious software, which means once the victim confirmed, great thanks, that means this PDF file was opened into the seller's device or whatever machines they are using. And the moment that PDF file was opened in that device, that embedded malicious software was executed, which we call remote access Trojan, which gave access to that particular cyber criminal to the seller's device. And imagine that seller is small or medium enterprise owner. What happens to their business? Just imagine if the cyber criminal has access to the banking system of the seller. All the money will be gone with just a single click. So, this is just an example, but let me show you why these sort of things are happening. If you are looking at cybercrime from return on investment perspective, there is no any other business on this holy planet which gives you almost 25,000% of return on investment. Not even Canberra real estate, because I know for a fact, Canberra is really expensive. I tried to buy lots of real estate there, but I could not. Okay, so how it works, uh, MI stands for malware installation as a service. So you, okay, you have lots of money. Instead of spending money or investing in real estate, you want to invest in cybercrime. So imagine how sophisticated these cyber criminal gangs are going to be. So if you spend only $57, you can buy 10,000 installs. And then you set the ransom amount of $350. Assume among that 10,000 installs, only 0.5%, which is really not ambitious. At least 10% pays that. And then you charge the cyber criminal service provider ransomware as a service. So if you receive 70,500 from the victims, you charge 5% of that profit. So then it becomes 16,625. And then all those money is in digital currency or in bitcoins. Then you cash that out. So cash out as a service. So that is another service that has got 15% charge. So in the end, just by spending $57, you get back $14,200 almost. So I might be feeling tempted sometimes, but I will never do that. It's a crime, so you should never do that. So this is why cyber crimes are ramping up. There is no sign of slowing down in terms of cyber attacks and the cyber criminals around us. So, I think I have scared you enough. 
if not, probably have enjoyed a bit, and you know these things can happen coming from me. So what are the current solution? But if you see in the parenthesis, it's a myth. Why? Because if a rookie like me who spent 10 years of their life in cybersecurity, still these sort of things are happening, so the people who have invented internet, they are regretting more that yes, still we are not being able to stop the cybercrime. But still, we can't give up, we can't keep on trying. So we can't reduce the attack surface. Simply, we should get rid of all the devices which we really don't want. We don't really need one smart fridge to tell us, okay, what's missing in my fridge? Well, I'm not really demoting any smart fridge manufacturing company here. Prevent from known threats. Now you know that if you are going to use Facebook Marketplace, you should be really cautious and you should verify who you are dealing with. Identify the unknown attack. So that's the job of all the researchers around us who are trying to put themselves into the criminal's minds and try to find out whether they can be one step ahead of the cyber criminals to find out near types of attacks and mitigate zero-day infection. So you can't really get rid of these attacks. So once you are under attack, what you can do to mitigate the attacks. Now, let's switch gears to international space. So yes, you are really interested to know what Australia is trying to do here, how we as Australia are trying to be a cyber smart nation. So we should have common understanding. So according to the cybercrime frameworks by Australia and DFAT, and probably you have seen it somewhere, which was released last year. So we have common understandings about among the countries across the globe, especially five ICE countries. We have got each other's back. We have international law in state conduct in cyberspace. So if anything happens in some country, so they should be helping us to find out who is the culprit there. So I think all of you have uh, gone through the incidents of a bank heist in Bangladesh. So some group of hackers, they have vanished millions of dollars from Bangladeshi Bank, which was in New York and still, still going on the investigation and committed to support. Australia is really committed to support all the other nations who wants to have the help from Australia. So Australia is not scared of public attributions. In 2020, Russia twice, China in 2018, Iran in 2018, Russia in 2018 twice again, and last but not least, North Korea. It must have been in this list, otherwise there is nothing happening around us. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I'm, honestly, I mean, I have no beef against North Korea, but yeah, I mean, they're doing a lot of stuff. Now, some success story. It's not all doom and gloom around us. There are success stories. So probably a couple of weeks back, we hired Australian Federal Police with the help of FBI. They came up with this ingenious idea to develop this app called Anom. So by the same social engineering attacks, they have infiltrated or they have convinced the actual criminals or gangsters or whatever crimes they are doing. 
to use this app so that they can be anonymous. They have fell for this trap and as a result, we have hundreds of arrests in staggering global crime sting. So that's the good news. That's not all doom and gloom. So there you go. We are still not giving up and we will not give up. We will continuously try to stop this cybercrime. So as an individual and as an enterprise, what we can do? I think apart from all the technical stuff, everything we see, everything we hear, all those technical configurations and all the stuff, we just need to use emotional intelligence, right? So I can give you a simple analogy. So a couple of years back when I was trying to purchase a vehicle, I was really fussy about front and back parking sensors and reverse cameras. And I told my dad, dad, this car is going to cost at least five grand more. Why is that? Because I'd go for parking sensors and reverse cameras. He reacted as such, I'm telling him something weird. I have driven my car all my life without parking sensors and reverse cameras, and I'm still living happily, I'm still driving without those sensors and reverse cameras. Why can't you do that? So yes, as we rely more on technologies, there will be more and more vulnerabilities. We'll be exposing more to this type of cybercrime. So you have to use your emotional intelligence to ask yourself what you need, why you need, and does it create any more vulnerability in you, right? And for the enterprises, so those who have enterprises or business organizations, I know some people will hate me for saying that, but it should be part of the job requirement. Imagine someone who is really good at accounting or finance or auditing. So you had that guy thinking, okay, this guy is going to save me millions of dollars because he or she is really good at their job. What if that employee becomes the victim of a cyber attack or social engineering attack. You have seen how simple it is to hack someone and get the access to the device. So if that type of attack happens via employing someone who doesn't have emotional intelligence when it comes down to being safe online, you'll be hit by ransomware attacks and you'll be paying millions of dollars. So there is no point hiring someone who is really good at their job but doesn't have emotional intelligence when it comes down to being safe online. So that must be part of job requirements. If you don't really do that, then no matter how many mohis are out there around you doing cybersecurity research, you can't really save yourself. And the other thing is regular ethical hacking campaign. So all of a sudden, you should be checking your organization's networks. All of a sudden, you should be trying to launch ethical hacking campaigns to see who is falling for these traps. So if you can do that, yes, you might be having enough time to rectify the problems you have. Now, I think I have bored you enough. Last but not least, again, trying to brag about my workplace ECU. So if you really want to 
pursue something, if you really want to have some advice, if you have someone who are really interested in cybersecurity education, come, exciting things are happening at ECU. Join us and become world ready. And at ECU, we have experts in Interpol, and we have got, I'm not bragging, but we have over three millions of readers across the globe. And yeah, I mean, we have global reach via TV, radio, newspaper, and you can see I'm standing here in front of you, otherwise I wouldn't be here. So yeah, that's it uh, uh, from myself. And last but not least, what I can say is question everything. No matter what you do online, you have to ask yourself the question that what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, how I'm doing it. Because you have to keep that in your mind. No matter what you do, no matter how you live in this era of Internet of Everything, we are all the victims of cybercrime. It might happen today. It might happen two years later. At some point of time, it might happen. And it will happen. I am hoping it, it doesn't happen. But it might happen if you are not safeguarding yourselves from all these malicious actors. So that's it, question everything, that's it. Thank you, Mohi. Can we call you Mohi? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you call yourself Mohi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, just, easier. Yeah. Uh, just before we go to questions, I was reflecting um, as, as Mohi started speaking that this has been a very big seven days in international relations and international affairs with the announcement of AUKUS last week. And if you look at the AUKUS statement, I know the highlight of it was um, the submarines, but one of the key things that the, the new alliance is working on and stipulated in their statement is cooperation on cyber. So the work on cyber has a big impact on how countries um, interact with each other yeah. um, and to protect each other from, I guess, like in a conventional sense, from a common threat. So it is, it is very topical yeah. um, in whenever nations get together and discuss threats. So, um, Mohi said, question everything. So, the floor is yours. Feel please, free. And, and it's quite impossible to cover cybersecurity within just 40 minutes, but I think I have tried my best to keep you entertained. But yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, what's going around and what you should be looking for. And yeah, I mean, feel free to ask questions. As per usual, introduce your, yourself and uh, before you ask your question, please. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on the um, cyber attack that happened on the Irish health system. And um, yeah, if you can shed some light on that. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not 100% uh, aware of that. But uh, if you ask me about healthcare cybersecurity, I gave you the example that cyber criminals know for a fact if, let's say, my dad uses a pacemaker and that's connected to the internet and that can be accessed remotely. So if my dad is under attack, obviously I'm gonna pay the ransom. So the criminals know the pressure points and that's why they're trying to attack the healthcare systems. I know it, it's 
a double-edged sword because we have to have all the benefits from this internet in healthcare system, but at the same time, if we are not designing all these systems with cybersecurity in mind, then obviously things, these things are gonna happen. Okay, thank you. Thanks, I've got lots of questions, but sure. I'll, just, I'll just start with two. One is, um, Russia's known for being a source of a lot of cyber attacks, but also, when I had a really bad cyber attack once. I had to just reset the whole computer. Mm -hmm. And I went to Choice Magazine to find out who had the best antivirus software, and it was Kaspersky, mm -hmm. Russian. Yeah. So is there an irony there? <laughs> and the other thing is, I'm looking forward to the future when we have driverless cars. Yeah. I mean, the potential for disruption there is pretty staggering, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, because when it comes down to internet-connected vehicles, that requires real-time responses. So imagine, I mean, I'm not picking on Tesla, but imagine you have a Tesla and you require real-time response from the servers. So if, even if you are not hacked, if the response time is a bit, I mean, one or two seconds, more than you might be falling into an accident. So yes, I mean, Tesla is trying to have their all bug bounty programs or cyber hackathons, but still, we are not seeing any sustainable solution when it comes down to internet-connected vehicles. So we have a new solution called edge computing. So instead of your card data residing in the cloud, which is somewhere in, let's say, in Kenya or South Africa or anywhere, remote place with big data centers to just save the electricity cost. It should be somewhere near you. For example, if you're driving a Tesla in, let's say, WA, your cloud server or the edge server should be around you to minimize that response time. So yes, there are approaches to safeguard your connected vehicles, but still, if you are opening up more and more computing devices, meaning you are not reducing your attack surfaces, rather you are extending your attack surfaces when it comes down to internet connect vehicles. And apart for about the Russian thing, so I, I just need to remind you about all those movies you see, Double Agents, uh, Sleeper Cells and all the spies. So MI6, uh, KGB, and all the stuff, these are happening in real life, let me tell you. And if, if we as cyber smart nation, if we are not vetting people with comms, otherwise we'll be falling into the hands of cyber criminals and we'll use antivirus from known publicly attributed nation states. And we have seen we are under attack back in 2019 Parliament House was under attack, so Sorry. Parliament House, yeah, so, yeah. Just on Ash's question, so if, you know, in terms of, you know, people like us, individuals, how best do we protect it? Buying the, uh, so the virus, antivirus, uh, anti-cyber software or the, the, the programs, how effective is that? So it, these are really effective if and only if you update those. For example, if you are using iPhone, uh, we have got recent update on iOS 15, 
which specifically mentions that there has been some security vulnerabilities. So if you have not updated your iPhone yet, you might be in trouble. So that goes same for the other devices, Microsoft Windows or all other devices you have. So if you really have the antivirus, which is effective, but you have to check now and then whether there has been any patch or any update required or not. So you have to keep on updating your systems and always look for anything new happening around you or if you see any changes or not. So you have to be really vigilant and see what's going on. Hi, my name's Ben. Um, I'm a master's candidate at Deakin University in international relations. Um, so this may come close to talking too much politics, okay. um, but my understanding is that since 2007, Russia's been experimenting a lot with cyber attacks through the post-Soviet post kind of area. So 2007, um, lots of cyber attacks in Estonia, 2015, started moving to Ukraine, a bunch of stuff through Georgia um, in that space between. What can Australian white hat and like everyone involved in cybersecurity do to support those spaces? Can we help them at all? Um, and are institutions like AUKUS and Five Eyes able to help or is, are we not able to access and support because of um, their closeness to Russia? Uh, look, I mean, if the victim countries really need our help, yes, we are committed to support, but there are some fine lines about national security and top secret material. So it's the victim country who needs to decide at what extent we can open up to the helping state, how much access we should give, whether we can give access to all the secret service details or whether we can give access to Australian uh, cybersecurity center for their prime minister's computer or anything to do with their parliament house, all the policymakers. So it's up to the victim state how much help they need. And Australia has been already helping few other states and there are countries who respect the international law. For example, if there is a cyber criminal, let's say from Russia, and if Russia is trying to locate that cyber criminal and just bringing the, that cyber criminal to justice, it's up to Russia. But we as Australia, we can't really intervene. And that, that, that's where this whole gray zone stuff comes in. We have ACO staff, so we have SEIC staff, and someday I would love to join those clandestine organizations and go into covert missions and find out what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to because I'm a really big fan of all those spy movies. <laughs> ah, yes. Uh, Samina. Hi, thank you very much. A um, couple of questions. You talked about the COVID-19 certificate that can be hacked. Yep. So what is the Australian government doing about it? And then you talked about uh, two of the ECU academics who are with, working with Interpol, or is it three? So what is the Interpol's role in ensuring that there is uh, cybersecurity? So what kind of agreements are there and what kind of contributions do your colleagues make in that process? Okay, the first question, a really good one. Probably you have picked it up from the news last week. So back in Sydney, you have seen how worse the situation is. So everyone is looking for jabs and fully vaccinated and the COVID-19 passport. So yeah, I mean, the whole vulnerability lied inside that system. So if you design your MyGov system as such, 
everyone can tamper with that passport. So simply put, it's just a PDF file that you can download from your MyGov site. But if that PDF file is not secured enough, that means anyone can open that up in Adobe Premiere or any other PDF software and then they can just edit their name and they get vaccinated. No one questions. So you can't really track that in real time. So if you are in Sydney and if a police approaches you, what is your COVID-19 certificate? We just show you and they believe you. That's it. So it's the MyGov team and they are, I sincerely hope they have already fixed it. But as of last week, they have already started working on that. So hopefully that is fixed by now. But again, I mean, for us as an individual, we should check that whether the PDF certificate we get from the MyGov system or the certificate we can show in our Apple phone digital wallet, whether that can be tampered with or not. So the simple way to check that, just go to your computer and see whether that PDF can be edited or not. If that can be edited, that means everything can be edited. And for the second question, uh, two of our academics, uh, Professor Andrew Woodward, our executive dean, and Professor Craig Valley from ECU Security Research Institute director. So they are the experts in the Interpol's advisory committee. So their contribution is to advise Interpol how to come up with some policies when it comes down to international policing. And I don't really know beyond that. So that's, that's just their job. Yeah, question. James, and then after that, thank you. Um, I'm Jim Baxter. Um, first of all, you're talking a lot about um, individual uh, cyber factors, and I'm sad to say I'm a member of the involuntary having been hacked club. Um, but on a bigger scale, um, lately we're talking about submarines and all this sort of thing down the road. In reality, are these things going to be able to uh, withstand developed cyber attacks from enemies? Absolutely, because we, we are always trying to be one step ahead of the cyber criminals, and that's why we have a term called white hat hacking or ethical hacking. So when we deploy those internet-connected vehicles or submarines or uh, unmanned aerial vehicles in battlefield aviation, we test them to their core that whether there might be any vulnerability or not. And once we are happy with that, then we go ahead and deploy those systems. But me as a non-defense personnel or non-defense academic, my job is to get access to the ones we have access to. For example, when it comes down to drones, I don't have access to multi-billion dollar drones used by Royal Australian Air Force, but I do have access to the drones which are being used by public. So I can find out those vulnerabilities and I already found some. Uh, that was a drone from DJI. So it is one of the popular manufacturers here in Australia across the globe. So yes, there are some approaches which we can take and to always keep on testing those technologies. We should not take it for granted that these will be secure by themselves. So the manufacturers design their stuff as such. They are designed to last, and with that mentality, cyber criminals are marching in. So we have to be aware of the longevity 
and the software sustainability in those systems. And we have to continuously check whether we can update the security system or not. And when it comes down to multi-billion dollar gadgets like submarines and aerial vehicles, yes, there are dedicated team in DSTG, uh, Defense Science Center, Western Australia, there are dedicated teams working on that. And yes, I have been trying to apply for the Defense Science Center grants for the last one year. Probably I'll become successful next year and then I can get my hands on to the billion dollar stuff and can tell you guys more what's going on. You're welcome. It's, it's my job. Just, just, a, just a slight follow up on that. So that, you know, for me, that sounds like a lot of persons involved, a lot yeah, of yeah. people, you know, we, we need a lot of people involved in the defense as white hat hackers and the like. Is Australia doing enough to get those skills and abilities, um, you know, equip ourselves with, you know, what we need to for, from a defensive perspective? That is an excellent question. And me being in cybersecurity, I would love to get more announcement from our prime minister that we have hundred billions of dollars of investment only in cybersecurity. But last year, Prime Minister announced 1.65 billions of dollars for cybersecurity projects and enhancing the cyber capabilities in Australia. So yes, these things are in place. And if you have seen, there are many cyber CRCs across Australia. We have got one recently with uh, satellite security, SmartSat CRC, which is based in Adelaide. We have one in ECU, Cybersecurity CRC, which is uh, the headquarter of all things cyber in Australia. So, and in ECU, we have the Academic Center for Cybersecurity Excellence. So, yes, lots of things are going on, uh, but due to COVID 19, there are projects which are hanging. And there are projects which we are supposed to get money from, but again, things have been delayed due to this COVID-19. But yeah, I mean, Australia is spending a lot of money to enhance our cyber capabilities. And yes, we are one of the top countries across the globe in terms of investment in cyber. Great, sorry, you've been waiting patiently. <coughs> Thanks for your interesting talk. I'm Kate Boland. Just talking about blockchain technology and how secure that is. Uh, that is an excellent question. And yes, this is just a buzzword. And I know for a fact that uh, lots of people have different understanding on blockchain. So just to put it simply, blockchain is nothing but a technology under the wider umbrella of cryptography. So blockchain ensures, uh, I mean, if you don't mind, just to give you a detailed example, if you have a folder of files, that means in your blockchain network, someone else has the same folder. So once you try to edit something in, inside that folder, any file you want to edit, or if you want to delete something from one file, that should be agreed upon with your partner who also holds the same folder and those files. Now, just to use that capability of transparency, immutability, and data integrity, people can use that many well. However, in doing so, there are vulnerabilities available. What if the 
partner you have in your blockchain network, he or she gets compromised. So you are blindly believing anyone in the blockchain which you are not supposed to. So what happens to your files then? What if the compromised personnel tampers with the data and you blindly agrees that personnel that, okay, uh, I sh he's on the blockchain network, I should believe him or her, but in reality, you are being fooled by that cyber criminal. So yes, blockchain, uh, nowadays, starting from 2017, everyone tries to get into blockchain, all this cryptocurrency, crypto mining, bitcoins, newer types of cryptocurrencies. But trust me, I mean, I have been looking at blockchain for the last couple of years, and till the day, federal government will say there is no more <coughs> banks across the globe, we can rely on blockchain. But to be honest, I mean, again, I'll just speak on my dad. Uh, I was talking with my dad, hey, why don't you invest your money in crypto? Uh, last year, bitcoins were sold for $70,000 a bitcoin, and now it's dropped down to probably $1,000 or $500. My dad said to me, till I die, I'll rather invest in real estate because I can see the land and the house, I can touch the dirt or the mud in front of me. Can you show me a crypto? No? So yeah, I mean, a blockchain, yes, uh, it is good if that is implemented right, but if it is not, then we're still in the same mess. So yes, uh, uh, there are people who are really for blockchain, there are people who are really against blockchain, but we'll see as we progress towards 2030, 2040, let's see how it goes. But in, in, in our lifetime, we might not see any banks being vanished in front of our eyes, so it might never happen. So imagine what would happen if there are no banks, so what the Commonwealth Bank, ANZ, or big four banks, what they're gonna do? So yeah, I mean, if you really want to incorporate blockchain, you have to do it right, and you have to reduce the attack surfaces, you have to find out what problems I'm trying to solve with blockchain, then it can work right, otherwise not. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Dr. Ahud, my name's uh, Mike. Uh, I'm a student. And uh, I've got two questions for you, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. First thing, in answer in any, any order, uh, I know a year 12 uh, young gentleman who's actually enrolled in your course for next year uh -huh. at ECU. So I was just wondering what kind of skill sets and opportunities you're, you're offering uh, your graduates at, at the end of the course. Uh, and the second one is with regard to state-sponsored cyber war. Do you have any insights or opinions on why Iranian research facilities keep seeming to burst into flames every now and again? Uh, well, I'll start with the Iranian question. Uh, honestly, I mean, these things are falling in such a gray zone. No one knows what's happening. So. We just need to be ready for anything that can happen to us. And honestly, I mean, with uh, those publicly attributed country, North Korea, Iran, China, Russia, fingers crossed, I mean, anything can happen. So I honestly don't have much idea about what's going on there in Iran. So, yeah. I know famously the Yeah, yeah, that, that happened a long time ago. But yeah, I mean, nowadays, probably, 
they focused on something else. Uh, last couple of years, they have been focusing on our education system. So any was hit by cyber criminal gangs. I can't really give the credit to Iran, but that might be some other state-based actors who are trying to get into our education system. So if, I mean, just to sidetrack your question, if someone has access to our education system, imagine what they can do. They can bring in spies or agents or mercenaries as a form of student. So if they can tamper with the student records, anyone who has got a defense background or um, military marines from some other state-based actors, they can come here as students and they can do whatever they want. Clandestine operations in foreign soil, who knows? So yeah, I mean, this is too much far-fetched, but yeah, I mean, I don't really want to comment more on IRON's research on cybersecurity and what they are doing, but the first question, that is an excellent one. I am one of the course coordinators at ECU for undergrad level. And yes, we have pushed ourselves to the edge while designing the course. So obviously, I'm not trying to sell the bachelor degree here, obviously not, but uh, we have designed the course as such. The students gain real life problem solving skills. And most importantly, we have work integrated learning as a part of the course. That means uh, in the final year of the bachelor degree, they would be able to work in real life industries. So we arranged those placements, for example, with big firms like CyberCX, uh, KPMG, all those big names. So they can go there and work with them, obviously without any payment, but that gives them the experience and they know what it takes to become a successful cyber professional in real life. And that is also credited towards their bachelor degree. So everybody wins and they become job ready. And basically what we are hoping for is the people or the students we place in those work integrated learning, they are going to be hired by that organization in the end of their work integrated learning and obviously with the bachelor degree finish. Thank you. Um, Jeanette Richards, my question is uh, big data, yep. artificial intelligence. Yep. Uh, does Australia have any sovereign control over any of that? Because it seems to me uh, it all goes up to the cloud, which is Google Cloud, Amazon Cloud, Apple Cloud. Yep. Are we creating any sovereign control for our big data? Like even just the MyGov stuff, or uh, is it outsourced to big American companies? No, when it comes down to private information and government agencies, everything for Australian government and Australian citizens, we have control over everything, but uh, we don't really have access to the Apple Cloud or the Google Cloud or Facebook Cloud because those are foreign entities. However, since we have committed- So who's actually storing our stuff then? So inside Australia, we have our own data centers and we have agreements with the foreign service providers that no matter what happens, we'll have every access to those data. For example, if the MyGov data is stored in a cloud server or a data center in Kenya or South Africa, we control everything. No one else have access to that. Why would we store it in 
those places. Why can't we store it in Australia? It's cheaper. It's cheaper. Yeah. It seems to be a sovereign risk to me <laughs> that you store your stuff off-site. And, I mean, so we, we're not capable of creating our own storage space. I mean, it, it will take a lot of time and obviously a lot of investments, but since the population to the overall land ratio of Australia is quite large, so if the investment is right, we can obviously do it here in Christmas Island, who knows? So up near you, across to the side, there's a company called Next DC. I yep. believe they're yeah, in that sort of field. Yeah. So they're in Perth, they're in yep. Melbourne, they're in yep. Sydney, they're in Brisbane. Yep. Um, so there does seem to be some capability. Yeah, I mean, we already have some capabilities, but when you mention big data and the way the data is being explored, and, and as you have seen, there will be 500 billions of connected devices. So we are creating more and more data. So it's our responsibility, we as common citizens, we should check out what type of data we are creating. Every smart device you are purchasing or you are using at your home, that creates terabytes of data. So if you can check that, obviously you will be in safe hands, but when it comes down to foreign interference, then yes, uh, for, for all those big companies, we can't really do anything. So uh, you have to. So we, we have we actually don't have sovereignty over our own data; it's stored elsewhere. Yeah, that seems a bit crazy to me. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not sure whether you read the book, but I recently read a book which I think is quite good on the subject: "The Hacker and the State" by Ben Buchanan. Have you read that? Uh, not anyway, yet. so that, that gives a, a very good background to, to many of the state uh, cyber attacks and defense measures over the last 15 or 20 years. Uh -huh. um, I, I think, you know, as an engineer, I've assessed the book and I think it's pretty, pretty good, robust stuff. But I wondered if perhaps for the benefit of people who are not so sure about how to maintain their own cyber defenses, you could briefly talk about things like changing your passwords, yeah. and what, what is two-factor authentication, and how does that help? Oh, I mean, this is one of the points I wanted to mention, but I felt like you should have known all this by now. But anyway, and thanks for the question. So yeah, I mean, my dad uses still one, two, three, four, five, six for his Android device, and all of a sudden his uh, phone was overheating, and he called me, you are my son, you are a cybersecurity specialist or you're working in cybersecurity, why my phone is hacked? Is, is it my problem? <laughs> if, if you use passwords like one, two, three, four, five, six, that's, that's, a, that's your problem and you should be considering yourself guilty in that phase. So yes, uh, we should, we must, uh, we might have 10, 20, 30 different online accounts, we should, check our passwords and that should be complex enough. Otherwise, there are huge computing powers available like brute force algorithms which can keep on trying to guess your passwords and they will be uh, correct at some point of time. So try to change your passwords at least every 90 days and for God's sake, don't use one, two, three, four, five, six. And, <laughs> and now what my father does is 
he writes his password in a notebook and he locked that notebook into his wardrobe. So that, that's the best solution I can provide him. So yeah, I mean, and for multi-factor authentication, uh, yes, there are some services which allows multi-factor authentication. For example, when you travel overseas and if you are trying to access your banks, then you should have multi-factor authentication. How, otherwise, if someone from, again, picking on Russia, tries to hack your bank account, and that guy should not have uh, access to your multi-factor authentication or your mobile device. Not everybody here would know what it actually is, I uh, What it does is, let's say you're trying to log on to your Commonwealth Bank account. I'm not promoting Commonwealth Bank, any bank in Australia. So the moment you type in your customer number and the password and hit login, it takes you to the portal of your bank. But if you have multi-factor authentication, the moment you hit login, then you will be taken to another page saying, uh, just type in your PIN code, that means your PIN code is sent to your mobile device or your mobile phone, and you only have access to your mobile phone, and you can type in that four-digit or six-digit password, and then you will be given access to your bank account. So that is, in simpler terms, multi-factor authentication. So yes, whenever you can, try to use multi-factor authentication in sensitive places, obviously MyGov, because your Medicare data and all those tax information, everything is really sensitive. We should not be relying on single authentication. Try multi-factor authentication, and yes, for God's sake, try uh, complex passwords with different characters, numbers, symbols, so yeah, I mean, try to do that. And this is the cyber hygiene we should be maintaining. Yes, uh, question. Uh, yeah. Another question. Uh, sorry. At the back. Two quick questions. One, what's more important in cybersecurity, education or public or increasing technical capabilities? And the other one, is, do you think password managers are a good idea? Uh, good question. Uh, password managers, is a, I would say 80% good and 20% bad because in the end, you are gonna use password for your password manager and that master password. So what if that is compromised? Because that can be brute forced as well. And even if you use multi-factor authentication, at some point you will find yourself, something weird is happening and uh, with me, it happened a couple of times. All my Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn accounts. Uh, someone from India, someone from Russia, someone from Morocco, someone from Mexico tried to gain. Probably they have brute forced my password and they are now stuck because of the multi-factor authentication. So I, I'm safe, but yes, if you are relying on password managers, again, just try to change your root password every now and then so that you can be safe. And for the uh, public education, uh, there are plenty of cyber hygiene programs going around. So if you are part of any organization, if you are part of any SMEs, and even governments, Australian cybersecurity centers, all the cyber centers for the government, they are trying to offer free services. At ECU we have 
a spin-off uh, startup called CyberCheckMe. So any SME, any individual, they can go and try to check their uh, cyber status across different places and see what's going on. So yeah, I mean, it's again, the point is you have to act rationally and use your emotional intelligence to figure out what's going on and how much you are opening up to these attack surfaces. Thank you. Um, last question. Can I ask a question? Yes. Hi, so my name's Molly. I'm the secretary for the Institute of International Affairs here in WA. Uh, my question was more about the types of people who choose to turn to a life of cybercrime and what you might know about them. We've spoken before in other talks about, say, people from lower socioeconomic groups or more vulnerable people are being recruited by radical groups, uh, either to assist in human trafficking or drug trafficking as a way to earn some extra cash. So is that the case with cyber criminals? Is it more often an organized group of criminals performing these attacks, or are we talking about individuals who may act alone? Uh, that is a brilliant question. So yes, it can be both. So you have to look at the motivation. So obviously I have shown you the return on investment on cybercrime is too damn high. There is nothing matched with that. So yes, it can be an individual, it can be a person with no purpose in life, but the thing is to commit all the cybercrime, they have to be really tech savvy and they have to know their stuff really well. So one thing they can study well and they can choose cybercrime as a profession because they can hide their identity for the rest of their life and no one is gonna track them down unless we as white hat hacker, we become really smart and can outdo themselves. So yes, it can be one individual who is really interested in tech and earn some good cash without doing anything from the well-being of their couch or from their house or anywhere. But again, there are state-based actors who encourage. Uh, if you have heard about compulsory military training in some of the nations or not, so yes, there are nation states who embed these cybersecurity capabilities as part of the education system or as part of everything they're doing. So like the physical training or military training, they have cyber capabilities nowadays. So yes, that can be state-based as well. And I mean, I have very less idea about uh, Israel. So they are the pioneer in doing this type of stuff, yes. Uh, if you just go on YouTube and look at the cyber capabilities of Israel, that is one of the nations with very low population. You'll see how many people are there doing this cyber security stuff. And yes, uh, they can be supported by their government. Who knows? I'm not uh, telling it upfront. Who knows? There might be some Mossad agents sitting here. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, yes, it might be state-based. It might be groups of people, it might be an individual, who knows. Excellent, so one last question, if no one else has one. Oh, yes. Sue's got one, sorry. Ash. <laughs> sorry, Ash. <laughs> um, this is very simple. Okay. 
This is very simple. We're used to people ringing us up out of the blue and trying to sell us something, scams. We, yep. we, we know that. Yep. We just hang up on them yep. or tell them to fuck off or something like that. <laughs> but anyway, so now it's happening on my mobile phone. Okay. So now I'm getting text messages, and other people are too, I'm sure, which says, please confirm delivery before we send you the package. And then there's a link they want me to click on. And then there's another one here that says, your package was delivered to the pickup point. You can pick up your package and then another click on there. How do I get rid of these? Who do I tell about these? Is Telstra able to block these? These are clear scams. So if you are using iPhone, you mm -hmm. just report those messages as junk. Mm -hmm. They will never appear on your phone again. And also you can report to Australian Cybersecurity Center saying, I have got this text from this number. Mm -hmm. And now they have become more smart because I used to get these uh, messages mm -hmm. like, uh, please confirm you're going to get this job offer $6,000 yes. a month. So just delete those and report as junk in your phone, but also report to the Australian Cybersecurity Center saying, I have got this junk message from this email address. So what they'll do is they will impose these telecom providers in your communication network. No one with this type of email address can send message to the they user. change it every time. The number's different on every occasion. So that, that's yes. why their artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning yes. researchers are working really hard to identify these patterns of attacks. Mm -hmm. And once they can figure out what is the pattern, mm -hmm. they can trigger an alarm while these sort of messages are being sent out. So those are mm -hmm. stopped now. But again, we are continuously vigilant that... They always find, some, to... they find something else. Yeah, so you have yeah. to... Uh, delete those, yes. report as junk, and just call the authorities that, yes, I got this uh, from this yes. number or this email address. So just reporting yeah. as a common citizen. How do you delete it? I can delete it easily enough, but I can't put it to junk easily on this on, on my phone. So if you're using iPhone, you should yes. be able to. Yeah. Anyway, that's not, I don't want to take everybody else's time up on this. Ah, no, it's all right, but you should definitely update your operating system. <laughs> okay, we have more time for one last question from Matt. What is the dark net? How did it come into being? Could it and should it be shut down? Uh, yes and no. Uh, dark net used by criminals and authorities like law enforcement agencies as well because you can use dark net to track criminals and you can impersonate as criminal to find out criminals. So that's the white hat approach for the law enforcement agencies. But for the cyber criminals, uh, they can do random stuff. They can put bounties over my head that yes, Mohi went to AIA this evening and he should be killed on his way back home. Who knows? <laughs> so yes, uh, that, <laughs> okay. I, I hope I don't have much enemies, but yeah, I mean, Darkness, darknet is good for good intentions, but if it is used for bad intention, yes, this is really bad because, again, if you just look at some of the movies, uh, some people are using darknet to be anonymous and putting some bounties on someone's head, and that cannot be shut down. So, how did it come into being, darknet? That started with the Onion router or the independent internet group. So they started this whole thing that when you are 
using the Onion router that is a particular open source software. So if you use that software, then you can basically get access to darknet. And once you have access to darknet, uh, no one can access your true identity. So you can be anonymous. Basically, it's like doing something online without to worry about my browsing history. So once we browse something using the real internet, our search engines like Google or Chrome or all the other browsers, they have the history. And all the other websites we interact with, they can track us down that, okay, Mohi is searching for a high chair for his eight months old, and he's somewhere in WA. From that moment on, I am bombarded with the advertisings and the emails and the promotions in my Facebook, Twitter, and my emails that yes, that guy was from WN. Let's hit him with the ads and bait him. So that's the digital marketing nowadays. But with the darknet, if you want to avoid all this, you can go ahead and use darknet. But you have to use that open source, the Onion router software. But again, if you are using that software in your personal device, and if the Australian Federal Police has any suspicion over you, they can check your personal device, and then if they find that you are using Tor, they have every right to check whether you are conducting any criminal activities or not. You can, you can, as long as you are using it for fun, uh, not doing anything abnormal, anything to do with crime, you're fine. But, uh, but the, there are chances because if you are in dark web, you are exposed to a lot of different stuff. So you might be tempted to check, uh, let's click on that link to see what it uh, does or what's the information available there. And all of a sudden, you'll be falling into the trap of some kind of mind games or mind manipulation. Uh, at some point, they're going to get to you. So it's better to avoid darknet. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that, that's the thing. So we've we run a, a bit over time, uh, but it's been a really engaging discussion about a number of questions and uh, you know, everyone, because as we said from the beginning, this impacts all our lives in a real way. Some of our 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 presentations and our talk sometimes is is uh, does not quite have that immediate impact on our lives, but it's impacting on us on a on a daily basis and an hourly basis. Can I invite uh, Molly, our secretary, to give the vote of thanks, please? On behalf of the organisation, I just want to thank you so much for coming and talking to us this evening. Uh, here is a token of our thanks. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was a fantastic talk.